Hey everybody, this is Jared with Geek Stuff Off The Cuff, and you are listening to Voices of Texas, the podcast about Texans with Matthew Hinman. When you're done here, come on over and check out our podcast, Geek Stuff Off The Cuff, where we talk about anything and everything, as long as you have a passion about it. New episodes every Wednesday. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. This is Voices of Texas, the podcast featuring the most interesting Texans you've never heard of. Recording in Midland, Texas, here is your host, Matthew Hinman. Welcome back for another episode of Voices of Texas, the podcast about Texans. From Wichita Falls to Brownsville, from El Paso to Beaumont, Voices of Texas finds the most interesting Texans for you. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe to it with your favorite app iTunes, use the podcast app. On Android, use the Stitcher app. You can even listen via your Apple TV with the podcast app there. Texas is rich in historical diversity, and Native American influence is no exception. Much of that history, unfortunately, gets left out of the history books and classrooms. But my guest today is working on a museum project that will show how Native Americans shaped the history of Texas. Well, Elizabeth Day joins me from San Antonio, and she is the founder of the Prickly Pear Living History Museum. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Elizabeth, tell me about how this museum project is going to take visitors back in time. Well, our hope is that when you visit the Prickly Pear Living History Museum, that you'll be able to see a landscape that looks a lot like the landscape would have looked 500 years ago. To do that, we're going to use Native American land management techniques to show um, exactly how the natives uh, affected the land around them. Okay, so are you going to have, uh, this is going to be an outdoor museum then? Yeah, this will be an open air museum. We might have a few uh, buildings where we would do exhibits and stuff like that. And one of the things we really want to focus on is, is having the home types of different people so the people from South Texas, uh, they lived in what were called yakals, which are basically um, brush uh, brush houses, basically. Um, and if you look at the people who came from the plains, they lived in teepees. And the people from Northeast Texas lived in giant grass houses. So um, e- even though you know Texas is one state, there's such a, a large diversity of the number of cultures. Um, and we really want to show that you know not all Native Americans moved around. Uh, they weren't all nomads like we think. A lot of them lived in one place for long periods of time. Um, and that's something that we really want to share with people. And, you know, it, it's so stereotypical for people to think that they all lived in the same type of dwelling. They, they just immediately refer to the teepee as, as a Native American dwelling. But you mentioned several others there. And so I think we'll really educate people with this project. Definitely. And one of the things that we want to do is that not only are we going to have those houses, um, because that's common, there are, are a couple of living history um, sites around the country that pertain to Native Americans, um, but mostly what they'll show is is just a village. And what we really want to show is is the village, but also how the landscape would have looked. And so we'll talk a little bit about the houses and how people lived in them, but we also want to show the landscape and show the connection that the people had, you know, where did they go and they get their food and, and how much of their food came from plants and how much of their food came from animals and why might those differences be in place? Okay. I see. Well, so did the native Americans then use 
the land in any particular ways, uh, first of all, what did they use the land for primarily? And does that affect the way the land looks now? Uh, definitely. So uh, Native Americans tended to want to create ideal circumstances for their prey species, the deer, the rabbits, uh, those kind of creatures, because those were what they really relied on for not only for their food, but also for tools. Um, so their clothing, uh, the things that they would use to make their clothing, pretty much everything came uh, ultimately from the animals. And so one of the things that Native Americans in South Texas especially did was use fire to shape the landscape. Um, and by setting these small controlled fires, what they were able to do is create park-like situations uh, where the deer would have plenty of food um, and also plenty of area to move around. Um, and we can see the, the changes in that. Um, when we look around at South Texas today, it's choked out with brush. Um, you know, it's difficult to move around in. We have a lot of hogs. Um, and this is basically the impact of not having Native Americans around to, uh, you know, burn out the brush. So they kind of were the pilot program of controlled burns. Yeah, basically that was, that was their main method of, of affecting the landscape around them. Um, and of course, you know, they had the benefit that they were already living in a system uh, where these controlled burns happened. So they were much easier to do today when they do controlled burns. Um, they can get out of hand just because there's so much brush to burn. Right. Well, now in the course of getting this project off the ground, getting it started, surely you faced a few hurdles in, in getting this museum opened. Tell me about some of the, the brick walls you've run into. And of course, some of the successes too, that you've had along the way. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, so the biggest hurdle we have right now is um, we don't have any land to start the museum on. Um, but the way I've been getting around that is basically trying to go around um, to different events around San Antonio. Um, and I've been invited to the Institute of Texan Cultures, the San Antonio Historical Mission Park, um, and Land Heritage Institute uh, to give these talks. Um, and I really like to talk, especially at the Land Heritage Institute, about the way that the land would have been shaped. Um, there. But yeah, so having access to land is definitely our biggest hurdle. Once we have that taken care of, um, everything else is going to fall right into place. Yeah. Well, what about successes along the way? I mean, you talk about speaking and, and, uh, going to some of these different areas. What other, uh, successes are you seeing so far? Uh, maybe, uh, social media, your website, uh, you getting some reaction from the community? Oh, definitely. Um, when I first had this idea and I first started the company, um, I decided that social media was definitely going to be the way that we were going to spread our message. Um, I'm fairly young, so it's something that I'm really interested in and, and fairly good at using. It comes naturally. So um, right now we have, I think, 802 followers on our Facebook page. Um, I contacted Mother Earth News Network, and uh, the person who runs their Facebook page was nice enough to to do a post for us. And um, similarly, uh, Meriwether Foraging uh, from Foraging Texas, um, he's doing a lot of the same stuff that, that we want to do. He just does it uh, by teaching classes. He doesn't want to have a museum or anything like that. Um, but he was very supportive of our message. Well, it, it's nice to see that you're you're getting exposure about this because I think museums are, are really, uh, they widen your horizons. Uh, they, they broaden your, uh, 
your your picture of the of of the past. Well, and speaking of of the past, um, you yourself are of Native American descent. Uh, I believe you said Coil uh, Tekken. And uh, tell me a little bit more about first of all finding out about that and about your family history, and then then too how that affected your decision to move forward with this project. Um. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, I had always known that growing up that, um, so my, my father's family is Mexican and my mother's family is Anglo from Texas. Um, and I had always known from my father that we were of native descent. Uh, he just didn't have a lot of that history. And that's one of the things that's pretty common among people of native descent in Mexico is that a lot of the stories have been lost. Um, and so what gets passed down is just knowing that you were a native person, but not necessarily knowing you know, who it is that you, who you belong to. Um, and so one of the things I, one of the things that really led me to start this museum was my own journey and wanting to find out more about what it means to be a native person. Um, and actually through the museum, I've come in contact with the local, uh, here in San Antonio, the local Kualwitekin Tap Pilum Nation, um, and was encouraged by, uh, one of their members, Jesse Reyes, uh, to do genealogical research and, you know, to find out about the history of my family. Um, and what we found out was that I have connections to this Kualwitekin uh, nation, um, and they have been very supportive. I've met with a number of them and gone to ceremonies. Um, and that's something that I really want to help other people do as well. Because before I embarked on that journey, I thought it was going to be something that I would never be able to find information about. Um, and what I found really was the exact opposite, um, and found people willing to, you know, help me along with that journey. Well, in your discovery of this and, and your research, what have you discovered about the Coahuil Tekken nation and how they used, uh, the land here in Texas? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, in a lot of other areas, we have ethnographic research and, you know, explorers who went through and we can just, we have a wealth of information. For South Texas, we only have um, a few pieces of information from people like Cabeza de Vaca um, and from the Spanish who came through uh, at the start of the mission period. But we know that the Kualwitekins, um, they actually had a number of different strategies based on the area that they lived in. So, they stretched from the southern edge of the Edward Plateau in South Texas all the way down through southeast, I'm sorry, northeastern, down through northeastern Mexico. Um, and that's a really big range. You know, you've got mountains there, you've got plains areas, all different kinds of stuff. And what you find is that they actually adapted to the land around them. So they figured out what grew best in the land and they learned to live off of that. So along the Rio Grande Valley, that looks a lot like eating lechuguilla and sotol all day. Um, but on the southern coastal plains, what that means is eating uh, the prickly pear, the nopales, uh, tunas. Um, for Kualwitekin people who lived along the coast, they actually mainly lived off of fish. And so we find that people tried to understand the world around them and shape it in a way uh, that maybe we don't understand now. So now we tend to make, we want to make it look like we think it should look instead of thinking, how can I make this, uh, environment, 
uh, work the best for myself, but also for ecology. And I think that's something that Native Americans were much better at doing. I can imagine so. Now, and amongst the different uh, different Native American nations and groups that that uh, were occupying uh, Texas, you know, predominantly during those times, they had to communicate with each other, and I'm sure there were significant uh, language differences. Your website, uh, I noticed something that was very interesting. You have a number of videos that are depicting Native American sign language, and while we think of sign language today. We usually think of it a way to communicate with those who cannot hear. But what really was the purpose for Native American signing? Native American sign language, um, the primary intention of it was actually for people of different tribes um, and different communities to uh, be able to communicate with each other without having to learn um, an entire new language. Because you're exactly right. Uh, someone who sp- spoke one of the Kuali Tekken languages would not be able to understand someone who was from North Texas and from the Caddo or Wichita nations. Um, Those languages are just, they're not intelligible to each other. Um, And so what some brilliant Native Americans figured out probably thousands of years ago is that uh, it's much easier to learn hand signs. Um, And you're right, it was not just for deaf people. Um, It was a language that was used um, by something like 90% of the population. And it was something that if you got into trouble, uh, you could find other people, even if they weren't from your tribe, and they would be able to provide you with help because you could communicate to them with this language what it was that you needed and that you weren't a danger to them. Uh, that just fascinates me. And they, they really facilitated uh, this uh, international communication method. Uh, and I just think that's just absolutely amazing. Well, uh, Elizabeth, do you have anything else you want to tell us about the project? Uh, what, uh, what can people do to get involved now? The best thing to do to get involved right now is actually to visit our Facebook page, um, which I'm sure uh, you'll have a link to. Um, but you can just search for us if you can't find it through that. It's just Prickly Pear Living History Museum. Um, and that's where we really keep everyone up to date. We, uh, that's where we post the new sign language videos and any news about Um, events we have coming up um, because we go to other people's events. We also plan events of our own. So if there's anything anybody would ever like to see, if they have any questions about Native American history, that Facebook page is really the, is the best place to go. Fantastic. Well, it's been great having you on the show today. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you, Matt. My guest today has been Elizabeth Day, founder and director of the Prickly Pear Living History Museum. And you can find her videos over at pricklypearlivinghistorymuseum.com. Also look for the museum on Facebook, as she mentioned. We'll have those links posted over at voicesoftexas.com. And that's it for today's show. But don't forget to show your support for this podcast over at patreon.com slash voicesoftexas. Just remember, even a dollar per episode will help. Please also note that I have posted on the Facebook page a link to a survey. I want you to tell me about your experience with Voices of Texas. And in return, I'll put your name in the hat for a drawing for a super duper neato Voices of Texas coffee cup. But you'll have to complete the survey by January 31st, 2015. Thanks for listening. And I will be back next week for another interesting Texan on Voices of Texas.
Opinions of guests, co-hosts, and others appearing on this podcast are not necessarily the views of its host, producer, or affiliates. No part of this podcast may be reproduced or retransmitted in any way over any medium without express written consent of the producer.